Okay, it is 1.45, and in the interest of starting on time and staying on time, I will we'll get started. Uh, good afternoon and welcome. I'm Catherine Minty, the organizer of the panel, reapprising the redundant, the value of copies and the study of textual artifacts. And I wanted to offer a brief introduction before we hear the great papers on this panel today. This panel aims to start a conversation around the question, why should libraries and special collections maintain and collect multiple physical copies of a given title? This is a vital question to consider given the increasing pace of digitization, diminishing self space, and the tightening of budgets that libraries and special collections confront today. While acknowledging these and other challenges that libraries and special collections face, each of the papers you will hear this afternoon will make a case for retaining so-called redundant volumes. While the papers share this common cause, their arguments rep represent a range of professional and disciplinary perspectives. So in the course of the panel, we'll hear why redundant volumes matter in the work of an academic, a conservator, a librarian, and a digitization expert. We'll then open up the conversation in the Q&A to add your questions about and perspectives on this timely issue. So I'll introduce each of the panelists and the moderator individually before their presentations. So please, and then please save your questions and comments for the Q&A following the remarks of the panelists and the moderator. And also take a moment before we begin to silence your cell phone. So make sure those are off. Okay, and our first paper today is going to come from Kristen Jensen. Kristen Jensen is a project manager at the University of Virginia Library. Earlier this year, she wrapped up on book traces at UVA, a special project that will be the subject of her paper today. Kristen has a PhD in English literature from the University of Virginia. In addition to studying bibliography as part of her graduate coursework, she has taken four courses from the Rare Book School. Before joining the UVA library, she worked for a small software firm in Charlottesville, managing the development of several digital humanities projects. Please welcome Kristen Jensen. Thank you. Um, thank you to the organizers of this panel. So I would like to start with the origin story of book traces. A few years ago, Andrew Stauffer asked a class of graduate students to go into the library stacks and pull 19th century books of literature from the shelves, not knowing exactly what they would find. One of the books discovered by the students was a volume of poetry. Let's see. Ah, how do I do this? You have the clicker, I can click it. Nope. <laughs> confusing me. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, okay. So, uh, one of the books discovered by the students was a volume of poetry by Felicia Hemans with some very interesting marginalia. Um, on the rear free end paper, the book's former owner had written an original poem in Hemans' style. Sing mournfully, sing mournfully, our dearly loved is gone. The gifted and the beautiful is from our sight withdrawn. 
Then let us sing her requiem now, in this her parting hour, and softly breathe her name, who was our fairest, loveliest flower. Mary, Mary, Mary. The author of this poem was easily identified by her ownership inscription on the title page as Ellen Pierpont Minor, and a little genealogical research revealed that Mary was the name of her daughter who died in 1862 at age seven. There's an obvious human interest appeal to the discovery of this homespun poem of mourning, inscribed by hand in what would have been a relatively inexpensive volume of popular poetry. As Stauffer has observed, although this particular volume of Felicia Hemmons' work is just one of thousands in um, sort of otherwise unnoteworthy reprints, the traces left behind by its owner give it artifactual value. Like a family Bible, he says, the book bears witness to stages and losses across many years. Moreover, it's not coincidental that the grieving mother selected a volume of Hemmons' poetry in which to record her feelings. Stauffer has argued that this instance of marginalia relates intimately to the themes of Hemmons' poems, most notably The Image in Lava, a poem about the impression of a mother and infant reportedly discovered in the excavations of the volcanic ash at Herculaneum. As Stauffer puts it, like a source book of feeling, the collection of Hemmons' poems seems to have offered an idiom to its owner having lost her child. By reading Ellen Pierpont Minor's Poem of Mourning in combination with marginalia by other hands in other volumes of Felicia Hemmons' work, Stauffer has made a case that our best way to comprehend the 19th century reception of Hemmons is through close attention to particular copies and their evidence of use. He has also advanced the larger assertion that we literary historians have generally overlooked a massive body of evidence relevant to the reception and thus the cultural import of 19th century verse the cheap collected reprint editions that begin to appear in the 1830s due to changes in print technology that thrive throughout the century. Stauffer recognized immediately that this massive body of evidence, the unique traces of past readership and ownership, lay largely unexplored in circulating library collections. And in the years since the accidental discovery of Ellen Pierpont Minor's memorial poem, Stauffer has led a multi-pronged effort to bring more such evidence to light. He founded a crowdsourced website, booktraces.org, where anyone can submit images of uniquely modified books published before 1923 and held in circulating libraries. He has also visited several university libraries and co-hosted Book Traces Days, engaging students in a kind of treasure hunt for marginalia. I have been part of a more formal and rigorous effort conducted at the University of Virginia Library with funding from the Council on Library and Information Resources. We called the project Book Traces at UVA. Our head of preservation, Kara McClurkin, was one of the principal investigators, along with Andrew Stauffer, and I was the project manager. And there's all of us who were involved. So to explain the project in brief, I worked with a team of graduate students and volunteers to carry out a systematic survey of pre-1923 imprints in our circulating collections, identifying which volumes contain marginalia, insertions, and other interventions made by their former owners and readers. We surveyed almost 116,000 volumes, covering most of our pre-1923 collections in open stacks, as well as a portion of the circulating collections kept in off-site high-density storage. We identified 12,668 books with unique interventions that meet our criteria for taking note of them. Um, we exclude things like just underlining, nonverbal, little marginal markings, unless they appear in combination with more eloquent marginalia. So by these criteria and excluding books that could not be located, our uh, hit rate, as we call it, is 12.5%. So that means one out of every eight books that we laid hands on um, that was printed before 1923 had 
you know, sort of some kind of marking in it. Each time we identified a book with significant marginalia or other interventions, we made a record of the type of intervention found using terms from the provenance evidence thesaurus, a controlled vocabulary developed by the rare books and manuscript section of the ALA. Some of my colleagues in metadata analysis and design are in the middle of adding these descriptors to the book's records in our catalog. The idea is that users of the catalog will be able to discover which volumes have unique interventions of a given kind. We also learned a lot about the prevalence of readers' interventions in our circulating collection. I won't um, dig deeply into the statistics right now, but here's a few quick charts. Uh, we've broken down the collection by subject area as represented by Library of Congress call numbers. Um, and we found a wide variation between, these are the 25 most marked up subjects, um, and then there's the 10, 10 least marked up. You can see the change in scale, we're now down to 3.5% and less. Um, let's see, and we've also done some analysis of what types of interventions are most commonly found. We think there's a need for what we're doing, and in the long run, we want to enlist other libraries in the effort to discover, catalog, and preserve uniquely modified books. Heather Jackson, in her book-length study, Marginalia, comments that the hardest part of studying the history of marginalia as a common reading practice um, was finding just representative examples in any kind of systematic way. She writes, ordinary libraries seldom have the will or the resources to catalog marginalia. Special collections contain special books. If books are listed in a catalog as containing manuscript notes, it's likely to be because um, the books were purchased for the sake of the notes, in which case they're almost by definition not typical or representative. And Robert McLean, in a blog, to, blog post titled, How Can We Be Sure Old Books Were Ever Read, identifies the same problem. He says, perhaps the most insightful evidence for historic reading can be found when a reader has written something in a book, confirming it has been read, but a major barrier to researchers investigating material evidence of historic reading more systematically is the difficulty of just finding that. So we're aware of other projects underway, um, such as Dirty Books, which some of us heard about this morning, um, UK Red, um, various projects, to gather evidence of historic reading with varying historic scopes and scales of effort. All of these projects point to the importance of preserving old library books as physical artifacts. Now, the medieval manuscripts and many books from the hand press era are presumably safe in special collections. But what about uniquely modified books from later eras? Book Traces has been concerned, especially with the 19th century, when a series of changes to the technologies of printing and papermaking contributed to an explosion of the print market. Many books of this era remain commonly available with individual titles represented by hundreds of copies in academic and public circulating libraries. We've set a boundary on our inquiry at the year 1923 because books printed before this date can be presumed to be out of copyright in the United States, which means that masses of them have been digitized by Google Books and made freely available online. We are concerned that as libraries face pressures to consolidate their collections into shared print repositories or withdraw low circulation items, um, commonly available titles from the long 19th century and especially titles that have been made freely available digitally may be targeted for deaccessioning. I probably do not need to convince this crowd um, that digital surrogates of books are for many purposes no substitute for the real thing. Among other limitations, the virtual library shelf of Google Books, which was stocked from a small number of university collections, does not represent the full diversity of uniquely modified physical objects that currently reside in circulating collections across America and around the world. 
Moreover, whenever library patrons choose to consult 19th century materials primarily through shared digital surrogates, they miss the opportunity to make a serendipitous discovery of the sort that inspired book traces. Perhaps our greatest concern, though, is the development of collections management strategies based on analyzing library records at a distance and weeding out apparently redundant copies of books, driven by the logic that in the long run, we only need enough copies of a given title to ensure that at least one will survive, quote unquote survive, the risks of loss and damage. Jacob Nadal, writing in a journal aimed at collections librarians, has confidently asserted that libraries collectively hold many titles with far more than 20 copies, giving us plenty of potential to draw down to a level that still provides ample assurance of survival. But, I would say, statistical formulae make no judgment about which copies should survive. And library records generally will not tell you if a specific copy of a book contains a handwritten poem of mourning by a mother grieving the loss of her daughter, or an otherwise unattested anecdote about Edgar Allan Poe, which unfortunately I don't have time to read, or an adorable suite of paper doll clothes from the mid-1800s, which was also found in the UVA library. So you have to go to the physical object and just look for these things. Um, I want to point out that in addition to highlighting the uniqueness of individual copies, our work on book traces at UVA has drawn us to appreciate the value of donated library books in their local institutional context, a matter that should be of concern as libraries move towards regional shared print consortia. Up until about the 1940s, the University of Virginia's library collection was built largely through book donations, and thus many of the 19th and early 20th century books in our circulating collections bear book plates or inscriptions tying them to specific donors, including former university faculty, many of the wealthy and well-traveled families of Virginia, so forth. We've come to see these donated books as extensions of the university archives and family papers held in special collections. And it has been revelatory to put the two resources back together in dialogue with each other. So uh, when we started Book Traces at UVA, we thought UVA might be a unique case in this respect uh, because most of the university's original library was lost in this fire in 1895, which was just uh, sort of digitally recreated last week with projections, but anyway. Um, so a lot of the library was lost in this fire and um, you know, had to be rebuilt. But over the past couple of years, our site visits and conversations with librarians at other institutions have convinced us that UVA is not unique and that the long 19th century holdings of other university libraries consist largely of secondhand books, just as, just as at UVA. Um, so we really want to sort of share what we've been learning by doing this concentrated project, this survey at UVA. We believe our methods are replicable and adaptable. Although Book Traces at UVA was a dedicated effort to do systematic shelf surveys, we tried to create a simple three-step protocol that can be piggybacked on other library processes, such as circulation or weeding, perhaps. The first step was a screening in which the project assistants checked the shelf for a list of books published before 1923, captured the barcode and book plate name for every book on the list, and decided whether to select books for description. The screening was accomplished rapidly by checking each page near the beginning and end of each book, including the end papers, flyleaves, and title pages where owners' markings frequently show up, then flipping through the text block to scan for marginalia and insertions. In the second step, the project assistants looked again at the books they had selected for description and chose descriptive terms from the project's controlled vocabulary. 
The descriptive terms were selected in a Google form and tied to each book's item ID, so normally represented as a barcode. The third step in the hands of the library's metadata team was to enhance catalog records with the descriptive terms chosen by the project assistants, a process that could be automated to some extent um, since the descriptors were already associated with the item IDs. This protocol can be even more streamlined if you're handling books that come to you as part of another workflow instead of going out and searching the stacks for them. We also developed statistical sampling methods that can be used to get a quick snapshot of a collection or identify subject areas that warrant a more thorough survey. Our large-scale project plan specified that we would survey all pre-1923 monographs in the circulating collections of Alderman Library, the main research library for humanities and social science subjects at UVA. We started, however, by surveying only a sample of books from each Library of Congress classification. Our project statistician, uh, Jackie Morrow, designed a sampling scheme that broke down the complete shelf list by Library of Congress subclassification, so call numbers starting with AC, so call numbers with AE, so forth, um, and randomly selected enough books from each call number um, to produce a statistical sample with 95% confidence level and 5% margin of error. Um, so, um, this allowed us to do a couple things, uh, sort of concentrate our efforts, but also find out how fast our crew could move through massive numbers of books. We recognize that not every library would be able to support a comprehensive survey on the scale of book traces at UVA, but we would like to see book traces methodologies applied on other scales and incorporated into existing workflows. Our methods can be used not only to find readers' interventions, but also to identify other copy-specific bibliographic features, and I know of at least three universities so far where Booktrace's methods are being adapted to local needs. In the long run, we would like to see copies with unique features flagged as such in library catalogs, both to make them easier for researchers of book history to discover, and also to make them look less like duplicates in the face of data-driven deduplication campaigns. So, thank you. Love those stall clothes. <laughs> okay, our next speaker will be Jim Kuhn. Jim Kuhn is the Associate Director for, for the Library Division and Hobby Foundation Librarian at the Harry Ransom Center at the University of Texas at Austin. Jim's past positions include um, being the Assistant Dean and Director for the Library of Rochester's River Campus Libraries, Libraries Department of Rare Books, Special Collections, and Preservation. Before that, Jim served in a variety of positions at the Folger Shakespeare Library and at the University of Akron, Ohio's Bierce Library, where he was tenured as a faculty librarian. Jim's collections of portraits and principles, which we'll be talking about today, has not quite yet reached 50 copies, but is getting alarmingly close. They are cheap and plentiful, so it is only a matter of time. Please help me welcome Jim. Thanks so much uh, for 
organizing this panel, and thanks also to Rare Book School and, and the Mellon Foundation for helping to sponsor this. Uh, my, uh, my focus today is on the King Richardson Company of Springfield, Massachusetts, a firm uh, for which I, I haven't located a business archive. Therefore, for some time now, I've been examining titles from the firm in multiple copies, both online and in print. Today, I'll begin uh, with a bit about examining multiple copies of titles issued both by King Richardson and by other firms. These are sort of hidden multiples. But I'm going to focus primarily on my efforts to untangle variants in a specific title issued only by King Richardson called Portraits and Principles of the World's Great Men and Women with Practical Lessons on Successful Life by Over 50 Leading Thinkers. So a little bit of background. Um, Tebble called King Richardson, quote, one of the largest subscription firms in America by 1891. Established in 1878 as W.C. King and Company, the house merged in 1887 with A.W. Richardson Company of New York, and then in 1896 with the Albany, New York firm Eagle Publishing Company, at which point it was incorporated, quote, with a paid-up capital at $200,000. The charter was forfeited in New Jersey in, 18, in 1933, by which time some of the firm's then current titles had been taken over by successor companies. The founding of the firm is told in a few different but all similarly vague accounts, including this 1891 Progressive Springfield article. Quote, it was in the centennial year, 1876, that Mr. King entered the business of bookselling in which he found his life work. He began as a canvasser for one of the leading subscription bookhouses of the West, located in Chicago, for whom he undertook the sale of one of their books during the summer vacation. He was rapidly promoted to field manager, then to general agent, and when soon after the house was in need of an assistant office manager, Mr. King was advanced to the position. From this engagement resulted the coming of Mr. King to this city. He was offered the New England agency for the most popular publication of the house, and after a little consideration decided upon this as the most central and desirable location on account of its admirable railroad connections and shipping facilities. He immediately removed to Springfield, taking a small office in Gill's building and began business, unquote. So, which Chicago-based bookhouse? What most popular publication of the house was he offered New England agency for? In what year did King arrive in Springfield, and in what year did he begin publishing under his own name? Possible answers are suggested by a continuing examination of multiple titles issued by multiple firms who overlap with King and or Springfield in the late 70s. But in fact, none of the answers are yet fully satisfactory. You can find the same set of stereotype plates with different title pages, different imprints, uh, but there are just so many variations of this sort that drawing any sort of conclusion is probably madness. Perhaps these sorts of inquiries based on such limited data sets aren't really scalable given the numbers we're talking about. By the end of the 19th century, individual subscription titles were selling hundreds of thousands of copies each. Despite my skepticism, I persist in comparing titles issued during King's salad days with those of Chicago houses. And although my focus from here on out will be on portraits and principles, I'd love to share some of these details uh, and talk with anyone else who's puzzled over similar situations where multiple imprints appear in multiple copies of the same book over the same stereotype or electrotype plates. Uh, and I'll just point out here that the ephemera and advertisements are incredibly important uh, uh, additional evidence uh, when comparing multiples in the absence of, uh, of business records uh, of the sort that you see on this slide. So portraits and principles. 
King Richardson issued many titles written or compiled only in-house, some of which were almost certainly distributed solely over their own imprint, that is, only by them. Among these was a success manual edited by William C. King, Portraits and Principles of the World's Great Men and Women with Practical Lessons on Successful Life, by over 50 leading thinkers, over 400 photo-engraved portraits. As usual, the title was issued in numerous bindings and at various price points. Here's some binding samples from the canvassing book. Uh, note, uh, in fact, here the, uh, let's see, a lot of pointer. Um, the first title page said over 400 photogravure portraits. That was changed. Uh, note the price prices here, including 390 for Style C. Um, multiple physical copies show evidence of numerous unannounced additions to the text block, modifications to portrait plates, and the presence of at least two sets of stereotype or electrotype plates for the central text block. These differences may point to regionalist sales strategies, to where various stock was printed, to the spread of the firm nationally and into Canada as the century came to a close. Now, each copy is made up of content that ran through two separate presses, with half-tone portrait plates, along with many of the preliminaries, on a, on a distinct and highly calendared paper. Uh, in some cases, these half-tone portrait plates were dropped in in a chunk. Other times, they were interspersed throughout the text block. Uh, some copies were issued with additional dropped-in multi-page chunks of text, biographical entries, for in instance, for the Lights of Canada. Uh, or Some Leaders of the New South, biographies written especially for this work by Professor William M. Baskerville, or Well-Known Men, that seems to have been added just so that they could get uh, Reverend Parkhurst in there who wrote a preface to a, uh, some later printings. But uh, from, from here on, I'm going to be talking mostly about um, the plate variations, um, and there's some half-tone portrait plate variations that exist that presumably are evidence of both an editorial eye and some budgetary authority. Uh, for instance, although there appear to be a core set of portrait headshots, an additional larger chunk is sometimes dropped in. There are also specific headshot plates that exist in some copies but not others. Oh yeah, here's a, here's a couple um, uh, 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 promissory car, uh, notes. Uh, note, I'll just note here that um, uh, Mr. Chase, sorry, uh, in the third copy he sold has given a discount. Uh, and I just have to wonder if he's going to actually get to 63 copies as this salesman did for another title, Successful Stockman. Um, at any rate, these are the sorts of pieces of ephemera that can help when, uh, when comparing multiple copies. Um, so here's, here's, a, here's an example of, of some plates that differ from copy to copy. Sunday School Leaders versus Lights of Canada. Uh, sometimes they appear in the same book, sometimes they don't appear in the same book. Um, there, uh, there are other variations that cost more money to affect, or at least access to the halftone plates and the authority or the cash to make new ones. In some cases, such changes correct typos. And so here I'll point out, um, we've got uh, Phil Custer, uh, George over here. Uh, probably an I skip because uh, uh, Phil is above uh, Phil Sheridan. Uh, here, Phil Sheridan. Again, uh, you can see why maybe those two were arranged 
next to or near each other on the, on the plate. Um, there are other changes we could talk about between these two plates, uh, different tops, um, uh, different, um, some, of the, some of the rest of it's the same, but some of the heads are, are swapped in and out. Um, some, some variations do replace one or more single headshots in a plate. Uh, so for instance, there's um, uh, cases where uh, Confederate General Stonewall Jackson is removed from among the soldiers' uh, uh, headshots uh, and a variant would substitute Union General Winfield Scott Hancock. Um, so we can see that here. We've got uh, Stonewall Jackson, sorry, uh, Stonewall and Hancock. Otherwise, the plates are the same. Uh, and in the sa similar fashion, the, the white Methodist minister and temperance advocate, Wilbur F Fisk Crafts, can sometimes be found substituted on the great reformer's plate for the portrait of Frederick Douglass, lower left corner. Or, or of course, I could have this back backwards. Uh, who came first, it, it's, it's not entirely clear. There are some cases, uh, but by no means all cases, where printed index changes have been made as well to omit the now misleading plate numbers for now missing portraits. So uh, what would it mean to do a systematic comparison of copies of this one late 19th century subscription title? I'm not quite there yet, but close examination and comparison of physical copies of portraits and principles is underway by use of, of an Omeka site where reference images and transcriptions and variants are, are mounted, as well as related print manuscript typed and other ephemera issued by King Richardson and its agents, portraitsandprinciples.omeka.net. I'm also gathering together various uh, uh, relevant exemplars using the Hadi Trust public collection feature. Uh, as a, uh, a staff member at an institution that, that subscribes, I can pull together a bunch of stuff, throw it into a, a bucket, and make that bucket public. Uh, I've long admired the online Lucille and Hoyle projects. I'd welcome hearing of similar online projects focusing on uh, multiple copies of a single title, especially for the late 19th century. Um, but as with you know, questions related to uh, the same titles issued by multiple firms, I'm sensitive to the danger of reading too much into these observed variations. I am coming, I hope, to an, the end of a full list of differences among portrait plates uh, but here's some of the other kinds of changes and differences that I'm going to be enumerating and looking for that I hope could help uh, bolster uh, figuring out what's going on here. Uh, I'll be looking for standard sets of city names that appear in imprints. These vary from copy to copy. I'll be looking for standard, perhaps standard variant sets of city names that may correspond with some of the differences I've noted in portrait plates. I'll be, I am compiling a list of all named field agents and canvassers in specific cities and regions, regions from King Richardson Ephemera and from newspaper accounts and advertisements. I'm also working to document firms uh, with any sort of relationship with King Richardson or one of their titles, regardless of whether these relationships are piratical or contractual. No way really of telling at this point. I'll document all copyright assignments for titles issued by King Richardson, and I'm going to continue to track text blocks issued under different titles or the same title, but you know, with more or less the same content, even if they've got different imprints. These really aren't that hard to, to find. Um, in the absence of business records, what other bibliographic tools or sources of evidence would help to make sense of these differences? I pose this as a question to the room, and I, I look forward to some conversation about this. So behind these variations lurk a variety of research questions, and you all, I would love to propose some additional ones. 
what reasons can be inter interpreted as be behind these quiet changes in content in American 19th century subscription titles? Racism and regionalism as possible inducements to purchase could use some work here. Uh, do imprint place name variants track with Crafts, Douglas, or Jackson Hancock variations among prints? What about economic and editorial decisions? The, you could argue that these are the same question in the subscription publishing genre. Um, but who decides on which chunks get dropped in of variant plates or other bits of textual drop-ins? There is a dearth of evidence regarding this and other subscription publishing firms outside of examination of uh, multiple copies and hunting on eBay for ephemera. I, uh, I, I continue to be a little skeptical about the prospect of, of learning much that is definitive, uh, but tracking differences like this copy by copy turns up evidence. And so I, I keep at it, uh, but my final question, evidence of what? That's my final question for the room. Thank you. will be Adrian Lundgren. Adrian Lundgren is a senior photograph conservator at the Library of Congress where she has worked for 15 years. In 2012, she received a John W. Kluge Fellowship to create a materials-based catalog raisonné for the photographer F. Holland Day. She has recently published on the use of glycerin in platinum printing process and the printing techniques of photographer Clarence H. White. She is particularly interested in topics that involve uh, photographic processes and technology and how it can inform our understanding of the history of photography. Please welcome Adrian Lundgren. Hello, hello. Okay, I'm gonna get myself set up here. Clearly it's difficult with this little guy. So. Okay, so I became interested in um, photographic manuals when I first arrived at the library because in all the other institutions I was in, you'd go into the stacks and it would be maybe 200 books, 300 books, and I got my job at the library and there were 78,000 books on the subject, which I was like totally blown away. And then it started to really solidify in 2005 when they made an announcement that they were going to take all of these books in the TR section and they were going to move them to off-site storage um, and that, that, that we wouldn't be able to get access to these books anymore. And so I started to really look at them in a new way because I was very concerned that if they moved them off-site, that my research would kind of come to an end. And so I really wanted to, um, well, the rationale for moving them off-site was that they were redundant in other collections, so we could find them, and that there was a digitized copy through Hathi Trust. So my focus in my initial look at them was to show that there's intrinsic value that is contained into the, in these volumes that's beyond just the textual information, and that in many cases, while they were cataloged in other collections as redundant, that actually they were not redundant, and that the digitization was severely lacking. Um, so I'm preaching to the choir clearly on this issue. Um, 
So to really understand the value of these collections, um, you have to understand the materiality that's associated with photography and especially the manufactured history of photography. So photographers, everyone thinks of 19th century photography as you're making something by hand. But in fact, there were huge manufacturers of photographic instruments and papers at the time. And that is um, documented, as we see here, in illustrations that we're all familiar with. And this one I love, it's E. Anthony's factory, and they're, they're making mats and preservers. And then here you see a mat and a preserver on a daguerreotype, so it's things like that. But more importantly in these books, which is the area that I think is really overlooked, is in the value of these photographic specimens that are contained. So it's actual photographs put into these volumes and, um, and what they can tell us. And so here, for example, is a salted paper print. So, but in, if you read this description, we know it's by Wallace Brothers, that it's on a Saxe paper, which is very interesting. There were two manufacturers of papers that were predominant at this time, so this represents one on Saxe paper. It was gold-toned using the cell door process, which is a particular type of gold toning. It had a gelatin additive, and it was coated with gum arabic. So it's the specificity about this particular sample that opens up all of these research avenues for people interested in the materiality of photography. So why do people need to know this? And I would draw a parallel between what we're finding in this collection and the Forbes pigment collection. So I don't know, you're all not conservators, but the Forbes pigment collection is really a fundamental collection for the study of painted materials. It was assembled between 1910 and 1945 by the director of the Fogg Art Museum. His name was Edward Forbes. And it was to collect pigments of known manufacture and known date so that people could start to really understand painted materials, um, put them in context of a certain time period, and also start to attribute paintings to different people through the materials. Photograph conservators have understood since the beginning of photograph, photograph conservation, which was not all that long ago, <laughs> that we really needed to have a Forbes-like collection for the history of photography. And one of those collections is now housed at the Yale Lens Media Lab. It was assembled by a conservator named Paul Messier. And basically, he assembled it for 20th century photographic materials by buying things on eBay. So here he is buying uh, photographic papers. And they are of known date and known manufacture because they are contained in the original manufactured um, container. And he understood that volume, big data, was really the key to looking at what we call now the photographic genome, right? So we're trying to build what Ancestry.com is doing with your DNA, but for photography. And you can see that the volume of that just is massive. But where is the 19th century genome of photography? He was unable to collect that because it's not available to him on eBay anymore. And I would argue that that genome is con contained in these undervalued uh, books that I'll go into. So one of the things, just to give you some perspective of what Paul's collection was able to do, was um, this Lewis Hines scandal that was on the art market in the 1990s. The FBI came to him and said, how do we know these are forgeries? And based on this genome of 20th century photography, he could say, this paper could not exist at this time period. It has optical brighteners, the fiber content's all wrong, and it all came out of this genome. So 
Kathy Minty and I, I started a project to look at what we had at the Library of Congress collections. I really needed help cataloging and kind of showing a proof of concept. So Kathy was my fellow for the summer and she helped me. She was incredible and she cataloged 1,500 samples, which is a huge amount, yet a drop in the bucket of what we actually have in our collection. And um, it was really to show what could people get out of this so that we could encourage further um, funds and also resources in this area. What we were able to do was to build a database to catalog these samples within the books, um, looking at not only the sample represented as photographed here, but also any um, information about uh, the operator who took the photo, but then also materials um, information and also uh, if there were any formulas or ads that went along with that. So what does that tell us? So what we see are documented in these books are examples of extremely rare processes. So for instance, this is a non-Parel plate. I had never seen one before in my life. They look a lot like tintypes, but they're made in a very different way. Um, so I, I think it's important to say, while this volume is redundant in other collections, we see it at the George Eastman House. I think there's one in Madrid. It's the uh, Spanish version of the silver sunbeam called El Rio Solar. Um, and while we have this volume in other collections, this sample is missing in all of those other collections. So I think it's important to recognize that this one at the library, which was going to be moved off-site and never to be seen again, no one would have ever known that this really, really rare sample existed. Another thing that they showed in rare samples were these two prints made with uranium. They're extremely rare photographic process, and actually if you use a Geiger counter, it goes all over the place, which was really exciting to see. Um, this volume was put out by Ernst Leitze in 1888 and contains uh, 10 photographic samples, all with very spelled out recipes on how those were made. This volume actually is very redundant in collections. We find it, I, th I think I found 10 examples so far, but what's really interesting with comparing collections that have this volume is that we know they all started at an origin point and that they went out onto their lives into these different locations, different environments. And so those prints should age differently because they were housed in different places. And so what it tells conservators and people that are interested in the preservation of these materials is, is this process fugitive just by nature of the process or is it the way that it was stored that makes it fugitive? And in this example, when we look at this Getty and Library of Congress, we can see that this top process, it's just really fugitive. It has nothing probably to do with so much how it was stored. Um, all right. One opportunity it shows us is, let me have, see how I'm doing on time here. Okay, is um, photographic, how people colored, hand-colored photography. And so we have a lot of examples of this in our collections. They're so beautiful. This really, um, it goes into how people colored lantern slides, which we have a huge collection of pictorialist lantern slides by Francis Benjamin Johnson. And this really helps us understand the um, fugitive nature of those colorants. And then we have this example of how people colored albumin prints. Um, and so let's just take a look at this book in, in particular. So this was the digitized copy <laughs> that we were going to have access to as a replacement for not having this uh, book in the collection anymore. And you can see 
that's just totally useless to me, at least. Um, and what's really interesting is because the library is the recipient of copyright deposit, many of the books that we have have really unusual additions to them. So in this case, the artist knew this was copyright deposit, and he made the whole self-portrait for this special book that he knew would be retained. So we have many books that show this kind of um, special material. One thing that can uh, come out of looking at these books, these are tintypes you can see uh, found in many books, and you can say, what can you learn from a sample set of five? Um, but you can actually learn a lot by comparing how these photographs were made even in a small sample set of five. So if we take out of those five, the two um, ones that have cracking, and then we look back to the recipes, we can see that those are always varnished with diamond varnish. So clearly in this case, it's the varnish that's the problem with um, the cracking of these materials. And also when we look at other examples and other collections, it shows the challenges of illustrating a book with a process that has no negative. So each photograph here is unique. And so you can't have a sitter sit for 600 tintype plates, they'd be exhausted and start to look really bad at the end. So they would change sitters, probably change photographers. And so you have these changes between volumes, which I think is really interesting. Um, so again, Cappy was looking at 1500 samples as like the 19th century genome. And what I think is really exciting is when you start to look at photography in a big data type of way and start to see what comes out of that. So in our 1500 samples that we looked at, if you start to just break it down by process, you can start to learn interesting things about when processes um, first come in. So for instance, we see the collodion first coming in here, but really hitting its peak of popularity here. And different processes that start to supplant other processes and why that might be, whereas like collodion is coming in here. And the matte collodion has a very similar aesthetic to platinum printing, which was also popular at the time. And so you can see how it was a cheap version of the platinum print. So it starts to explain a lot in how we understand the history of photography and photographic printing. And we can also start to look at maybe just one process, like the albumin print, and say, wow, there's all these variations in the albumin print of image tone, paper tone, paper thickness, um, the sheen of the paper. When does that start to come in and change? What is the... Um, that, you know, that process is around from basically 1860 all the way into 1890, and there are changes in people's preferences in photography. It also can start to help us um, identify what artists we're using on. I mean, it would be great to know what paper is Matthew Brady using? You know, can we tell that, and can we attribute prints to him based on that type of paper? Um, and then if we just look at the 1500 samples that we catalog, we can start to see this really interesting breakdown just in albumin printing. If you're studying materials and you really want to understand um, the diamond albumin paper, then you can look into our sample set and try to find that. So you can say there's 203 samples on known papers, uh, 37 different types of paper by 27 different manufacturers. I mean, who knew that there were 27 albumin manufacturers <laughs> at the time? I didn't until we did this. So um, our future plans are that we would continue to add our collections as they are vast. It is a never-ending project. Frankly, I need 100 cappies to come and work with me. Um, but we're also looking to expand it to other repositories in DC. 
And we're hoping to ha uh, launch this uh, database hosted at Yale, where other institutions could then log on and add their collections. So we were really focused on trying to get a big data set for this, this new genome, so to speak. But most importantly, just talking to you all today, I just want people to really take a special interest in these collections. They're such an amazing resource um, for conservators and people interested in the history of photography. So go look and let me know if you find anything cool. <laughs> Thank you. And our final presenter will be Brian Sinch. Brian is an associate professor of English and chair of the Department of English and Modern Languages at the University of Hartford. He has authored more than a dozen articles on 19th century American and African American literature and has edited two books, an edition of the 1849 novel, Appointed, and The Guide for Teachers, accompanying the third edition of the Norton Anthology of African American Literature. He is writing a book on self-published African American writing of the 19th century. Please welcome Brian Sinch. Hello, everyone. Uh, as, as Kathy said, um, I'm an English professor, and it occurs to me at a conference um, full of librarians that I'm preaching to the choir, um, and that maybe it'd be more, more appropriate for me to take bibliography to my discipline. Um, but uh, anyway, here we are. During the C-19 conference in Chapel Hill, North Carolina in 2014, I attended a panel honoring William L. Andrews, the foremost historian of the African-American slave narrative and the creator of Documenting the American South, which includes a massive online archive of North American slave narratives. During the panel, Several scholars of African-American literature sang the praises of Doc South, which provides free access to edited 19th century texts that until now resided almost exclusively in rare book libraries around the country. Early scholars in the field could barely imagine that kind of access, and most of the panelists sitting next to Andrews that day insisted that sites like Doc South would enable researchers to engage with lesser known narratives and would lead those researchers to rethink their assumptions about the form, style, and political import of texts that we have classed as slave narratives. Indeed, the emergence of digitization projects like DocSouth seems likely to change the African-American canon in ways that we cannot foresee, and I greet this era with no nostalgia for the hurdles that used to obstruct or limit research in decades past. But that doesn't mean, of course, that those hurdles aren't worth clearing sometimes, particularly in the case of some lesser-known texts that various digitization projects have rendered accessible. I see two particular problems attending the accessibility of digitized texts that might be remedied by engagement with so-called redundant copies in the archives. The first problem is that those online texts require a kind of fixity that disconnects them from the printed volumes on which they are based. Put another way, one edition stands in for many. 
The second related problem is that the texts that are digitally fixed and cataloged um, are cataloged alongside other slave narratives, and they're likely to be read as slave narratives rather than publications from a separate tradition. There are a couple of reasons that slave narratives present particular problems in this regard. This is sort of the disciplinary uh, issue. The first has to do with conventions particular to the study of 19th century African American literature. Since the 1980s, most scholars of this literature have highlighted the connection between literacy, personal development, and freedom. And this has helped to establish a critical tradition in African American literary studies. According to that tradition, the scene of writing forms a crucial piece of both slave narratives and other pre-1900 texts in which, as Henry Louis Gates has argued, the dream of freedom is figured as the dream of literacy. Because literacy has been a central concern among scholars, those scholars have spent a great deal of time recovering evidence of literacy and agency and cataloging that evidence in anthologies and websites like Doc South a digital space where little-known slave narratives are grouped with much more famous books like Frederick Douglass's narrative. This would not really be a problem either, except that the decades-long scholarly focus on recovery has meant that, as Eric Gardner recently wrote, there has been little attempt to do anything approaching careful descriptive bibliography of the slave narrative. And so, extant bibliographies like the one on Doc South can render our understanding limited or even inaccurate. One example from the bibliography I have just shown highlights some of my concerns. The Light and Truth of Slavery, Aaron's History, which was published in the 1840s in both Worcester and Springfield. Scholars cite the text only occasionally, for good reason. But when they do, they cite the Doc South edition as the authoritative text. That version, complete with page images, is taken from a microfilm copy. When Marcus Wood consulted the online edition of The Light and Truth, he noticed that the title page image of its author was so darkened as to, quote, give no rendition of Aaron at all. He went on to insist that the inkblot standing in for Aaron reminds us that the author's, quote, individuality literally disappears in the process of publication. This is a provocative claim, but provocative as it may be, the problem with it is that it has nothing to do with the text in question. I've examined 10 copies of The Light and Truth of Slavery, and all of them feature relatively clear engravings of the purported author. Wood's disappearance, oops, turn the slide off the page. Wood's disappearance is a result of the mechanical reproduction that made Aaron's book more accessible in the first place, and the subsequent use of the microfilm copy to disseminate it even more broadly via the web. With accessibility and dissemination, though, have come confusion about how the text signified in the 19th century and how it signifies today. This is not all, either. The Doc South edition of The Light and Truth of Slavery closes with the line, printed for Aaron in Worcester. But there are other editions of the text lurking in libraries across the United States. One of those editions, held at the American Antiquarian Society, has also been digitized. This edition, unlike the Springfield edition, uh, I'm sorry, and unlike the Doc South edition, includes Springfield, 1845, on the title page. This suggests something new about the light, for it shows us both a clearer picture of its author's travels and conjures a possible history for the book itself. But wait, there's more! My research has revealed that there are six unique editions of Aaron's book, only one of which includes a publication date. While this is not the space to venture a publication history for this book, there can be no doubt that there is such a history. In other words, the book itself was not the static object it seems to be in its online incarnation, but what I have elsewhere called a walking book. That is, a book that evolves over time as it is circulated and sold. 
Almost none of this is visible when we examine the book on Doc South or even in a single library edition. But it seems to me that the evolution of the text, and not just the text itself, is the salient feature of the light. The material book and its many seemingly redundant incarnations answers vital questions that the digital edition does not even compel us to ask. None of this, of course, is to diminish the crucial efforts of the institutions, scholars, librarians, and workers, I was one, who have created invaluable digital archives like documenting the American South, but rather to suggest that such archives might best be seen as provocations to further study not only of individual texts, but of the histories of those texts and the lessons those histories teach us. Before I embark on such a study in the remainder of my talk, I want to note a few more examples of the division between the fixed text of the online archive and the fluid text that circulated in the 19th century by naming a few more slave narratives that appear in multiple printings and or editions not fully represented online. And again, this is not a complete list. The Life of the Reverend Robert B. Anderson, The Narrative of Lunsford Lane, Solomon Northup's Twelve Years a Slave, The Autobiography of James L. Smith, Jacob Stroyer's My Life in the South, the narrative of Moses Roper, the life of Mary Prince, the narrative of Eleanor Eldridge, and even the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave written by himself. Because they are not represented online, the missing editions of these books are often imagined as redundant reprintings. But in many cases, they are remakings, authorial acts of improvement, expansion, or extension. And as I believe is the case with the light and truth of slavery, many of these remakings are themselves the story to which scholars might attend a story of process, of movement, of transformation, and entrepreneurship. A book like The Light and Truth of Slavery signifies as something different from an act of resistance or a counter to our expectations about African-American literacy. Rather, such a book realizes a deliberate authorial strategy driven by economic concerns as much as anything else. In the time remaining, I'm going to sketch the phenomenon of a text in motion by describing the evolution of James Mars's autobiography over the 14 years during which it was published. Though this sketch does not stand in for all the other stories to which I have gestured, it does exemplify a few phenomena in 19th century African American writing and publishing, and a consideration of Mars's redundant publications might drive scholars to reconsider both the ways they talk about the slave narrative as a genre, as well as the digital resources we use to archive and interpret those narratives. By his own account, James Mars was born in 1790. As a young man, he lived in Canaan, Connecticut, a small town in the northwest corner of the state. Mars's mother had been enslaved in Virginia before moving to Connecticut, and she remained enslaved at his birth. This meant that Mars was also a slave, even in the land of steady habits. He would remain enslaved until his early 20s, at which point he negotiated with his master to secure his freedom. He eventually moved to nearby Norfolk, Connecticut, and stayed there throughout the 1820s. In Hartford, for most of the 1830s and 40s, Mars was a member of the Talcott Street Congregational Church and a supporter of both temperance and abolition. He, along with the church pastor, James W.C. Pennington, helped to support the African American school in Hartford throughout the 1830s and 40s. When Mars moved to Pittsfield, Massachusetts in 1846 to live next door to her in Melville, uh, okay, are you awake? Uh, uh, it seems. It, they were at the same time. It seems he did so uh, to more easily support his large family. In Pittsfield, he became a deacon in the Second Congregational Church and worked as a farmer. Mars's years in Pittsfield were difficult ones. His wife died in 1850, and his children gradually moved away. By 1864, Mars was 74 years old, 
and he was known in the areas around Norfolk as a source of information on the early history of western Massachusetts and northwestern Connecticut. In order to satisfy various public and private calls for his reminiscences and life story, and to make it easier to distribute those reminiscences to interested readers, as you can see here on the, uh, in the introduction here, the first edition, uh, Mars wrote and had printed The Life of James Mars at the massive Hartford Printing Company of Case and Lockwood. As he explains in his introduction, Mars hoped that he could sell his printed book and thereby defray the costs of printing. Though we do not know what those costs were, we can approximate, based on the surviving receipt from G.W. Offley, a former slave who printed his life story at Case Lockwood in 1859 and again in 1861. And as you can see here, he paid to have a thousand copies of his 24-page narrative printed for $23.11. Um, and uh, Offley was, uh, um, this was a little shorter than Mars's, um, but I'm assuming that Mars paid about $25 to print his book. I mentioned cost here because even though Mars claimed to have printed his book to satisfy local interest, and even though he was still working at age 74, and even though he claimed that during the quote hay season that has just passed, I took my scythe and went to the hay field and took my turn with the hands day after day with the same pay, book sales soon became his primary concern. Before publishing his second edition, which has been misidentified as the first, in part due to Mars's own misnumbering of his editions, he secured an endorsement from the Pittsfield minister, John Todd. He would update that endorsement in 1868. By the time he published his third edition in 1865, which he adds an appendix for the second, in the third edition in 1865, the 76-year-old Mars claimed that his, quote, joints were stiff with old age and hard labor, and that, quote, finding so ready a sale for his pamphlets, he was induced to sell books to get a living. Beginning with his fifth edition, uh, Mars included the following language near the end of each edition. The question is sometimes asked me if I have not any means of support. The fact is I have nothing but what I have saved within the last three years. I have spent a portion of that time with my book about the country. I am now in my 79th year of age. I can labor but little, and finding the public have a desire to know something of what slavery was in the state of Connecticut in its time, and how long since it was at an end, in what year it was done away, and believing that I have stated the facts. Many are willing to purchase the book to satisfy themselves as to slavery in Connecticut. I find these textual changes particularly meaningful since they indicate a slight alteration in Mars's bookselling strategy. By shifting his reason for selling books from one rationale, a desire to defray costs, to another, an inability to labor, to still another, sharing a little-known history about Connecticut, Mars positions himself outside of a supplicant tradition and locates his book firmly within the realm of history. No longer is the autobiography a pamphlet meant to secure a donation, a dime here, a dollar there, but instead a history with a fixed purpose. As one would expect of a historical text, Mars added to his concluding paragraphs on several occasions and always made sure to change his age in this paragraph um, so that the book seemed up to date. Moreover, as the years went on, Mars began printing the price uh, on the cover of his life. You see up there. <coughs> Next starts the sixth edition a move that reinforces my reading of the book's evolution into a kind of local history with a fixed value. Mars's book initially sold for 25 cents, and then the price dropped to the bottom of the title of the uh, cover, um, and then it disappears from the eighth edition, and then, for reasons I don't understand, he dropped the price to 20 cents in the twelfth edition, and we're back to 25 cents for the thirteenth edition. Um, 
Given the cost of printing uh, and the possibility that uh, Mars sold all of his copies, he could have netted $100 or more per year on book sales, uh, book sales during the time he sold the book. I don't know how much money James Mars made, and I have located only a single first-person recollection of Mars' sales tricks. You can see that here at the end of the 12th edition, um, a marginal notation uh, <laughs> about a, a man who says Mars is still alive and walking around Norfolk, Connecticut. Nevertheless, um, we do have a bibliographical record that outlines a lengthy authorial and publishing career, and yet Mars is cited only occasionally by historians. Even Joanne Pope Mellish, the author of an outstanding book on gradual emancipation in New England, mentions Mars only in passing. Similarly, scholars of the slave narrative have been content to mention Mars and move on, since his post-Civil War text was neither politically influential nor stylistically innovative. Ironically, Though many scholars have performed important work of recovery on texts that were ignored in the 19th century, our NIG, the Bottomman's narrative, incidents in the life of a slave girl, they have ignored texts like Mars that seem to have circulated widely during that same period. As I have tried to suggest, one reason that Mars's book and others like it has gone more or less unremarked is because scholars are reading it through particular critical paradigms that have failed to sufficiently privilege bibliography. Instead of thinking bibliographically, most scholars of early African-American literature read books like Mars as, uh, uh, in rhetorical terms, um, rather than as an entrepreneurial act. They are reading for a story, rather than reading the publication history as the story. These reading paradigms have in turn led scholars to produce a kind of textual fixity, and I would say canonical fixity, um, for books that were anything but fixed. True, Mars's prose does not soar to the same heights as Douglas's. But he continually updated and circulated a book that sold thousands of copies. In other words, he created a product and found a market that enabled him to make a living and to gain a limited degree of renown within a small area. And as he distributed his publication across the miles and through the years, Mars both became a historian and wrote himself into history. These stories of entrepreneurship and community engagement are the kinds of stories we can reclaim through sustained efforts toward analytical bibliography efforts that might locate other books like Aaron's and Mars's that were, like their authors, always in motion. I now want to introduce our respondent and moderator, David Weitzel. David Weitzel joined the University of Virginia's Albert and Shirley Small Special Collections Library as curator in 2012, before which he was curator of books at the American Antiquarian Society and rare book cataloger at Harvard's Houghton Library. He has also worked at the University of Michigan's library, the Groyer, Groyer Club, of which he is a member, uh, the Richard C. Raymer Old and Rare, Richard C. Raymer Old and Rare Books, and in the book department at Sotheby's. Since 1984, he has been involved with Rare Book School as a student, staff member, and instructor for two courses, the Introduction to the Principles of Bibliographical Description and Printing Books to 1800, Description and Analysis. He has been Secretary of the Bibliographical Society of America and a trustee of the American Printing History Association. He is author of um, the first supplement to James E. Walsh's catalog of 15th century printed books in the Harvard University Library, 2006. The associate editor for Spain, Portugal, and Latin America for the Oxford Companion to the Book, 
2010, author, editor of Roger Stoddard's A Bibliographical Description of Books and Pamphlets of American Verse, printed from 1610 through 1820, from 2012, which was awarded the Modern Language Association's Biennial Prize for the Best Humanities Bibliography. Uh, David Weitzel is also the curator of the exhibition In Pursuit of a Vision, Two Centuries of Collecting at the American Antiquarian, Antiquarian Society, 2012. He has written or lectured on the bibliographical description and textual editing of Spanish, age, uh, Spanish Golden Age drama, Thomas Jefferson's Library, the setting of maps and illustrations from movable types, the early Harvard College Library, 19th century photographically illustrated books, and other topics. And for none of the above reasons, he is a minor celebrity in Nicaragua, something that we'll have to find more about um, when we take refreshments later. So please help me welcome David Weitzel. As mom said, uh, that's nice. So. <laughs> so um, well, thank you very much for the invitation to uh, come here and respond to uh, four excellent papers. Uh, it's certainly true that in recent decades, research libraries have faced pressure to shrink their print collection. Among the reasons are costs, limited space, availability of digital surrogates, declining use, preservation concerns, and demands that libraries focus uh, on the needs of their primary clientele. <clears throat> Meanwhile, libraries have become more adept at placing positive spin on their deaccessionate. <laughs> From a recent HathiTrust shared print program news release, we learned that 60 million plus volumes are to be retained for at least 25 years uh, by 50 partner libraries. <clears throat> Left unsaid <clears throat> is the fate of the tens of millions of volumes these libraries have yet to designate for retention. We'll keep hoping. <clears throat> How might the bibliographical community help to limit the loss of presumed redundant copies? Perhaps this is less a matter of reappraising the redundant than of redefining how we apply the term. We might begin by embracing this concise definition of bibliography, recently offered by Jean Thomas Tansel. <clears throat> and I quote, bibliography studies the manufacture and dissemination of books and related artifacts revealing in the process the vicissitudes of textual evolution and reception. Once we've learned that every book, that is every copy of every edition, is an independent entity with a unique history, we have learned the essence of bibliography. <clears throat> and our four speakers uh, offer compelling ways of redefining the redundant. <clears throat> Uh, Brian Cinch noted uh, how digital editions pose the risk of fixing text in a single form, thereby divorcing text from their physical container and concealing possible variation. Using James Marr's life as an instructive example, he usefully points out the value of collecting and comparing all printings. Otherwise, you might overlook the crucial facts of the text's continuing evolution and the alteration in Marr's bookselling strategy. <clears throat> But would bibliographical analysis support his characterization of this work as a walking book? Well, let's look. Uh, I was able to put my hands either uh, <clears throat> tangibly or virtually on four editions, and I've seen some more images here today. Uh, the first edition, 1864, 
the 3rd of 1866, in which the entire text has been reset. I don't know whether this happened in the third edition or the second, <clears throat> but it did happen. Uh, the 10th and the 13th editions. Now, all editions subsequent to the third have the same typesetting, save for the updated title page and the few other changes that um, <clears throat> have been noted here. Structurally, too, these editions are the same, i.e. gathered in sixes. In bibliographical terms, all editions after the third are actually reissues, likely printed from stereotype plates, with standing type perhaps used for the final few pages where he updates the story. <clears throat> In this, we find further evidence for Mars's shifting bookselling strategy uh, with the third or perhaps the second edition. <clears throat> uh, in in those, uh, one of those editions, Mars arranged to reprint and plate the text to facilitate later printings. Uh, we can also understand better how Mars managed production costs to maximize profits by <clears throat> uh, having uh, undertaken this. However, one also finds uh, a text that is substantially fixed, both textually and, and uh, physically. So I suppose Brian uh, um, might see the text as a little more in, in motion. I think uh, looking at it bibliographically, I might tend toward the opposite position and say, well, it looks a little more fixed to me. So where, where along the, the spectrum uh, will we end up? I think it's a question uh, worth, worth pursuing. <clears throat> Uh, Jim Kuhn's uh, exploration of the <coughs> King Richardson Company's unique uh, output uh, demonstrates how subscription, subscription books and other mass market literature can inform, indeed even confuse, our understanding of 19th century American publishing. In examining copies of a few mass market subscription publications, he has found an extraordinary range of variants both in terms of how the publications identify themselves by title, publisher, and copyright assignment, and in terms of their physical makeup, such as the use of multiple sets of stereotype plates, uh, variant illustrations, and updated text. <clears throat> it may be helpful to examine these publications on three levels. First, that of the publishers. Second, that of the physical publication. And third, that of the purchasers. By dint of tradition and training, when viewing print, we tend to privilege the publisher and to accept at face value the publisher's own description of the product. Uh, <clears throat> Jim has shown how dangerous this can be. Uh, in an expanded version of his paper, he uh, describes an etiquette manual published uh, under several different authors, several different titles, several different imprints, while sharing basically the same content. <clears throat> Uh, I hope that uh, he will continue tracing this, these complex publisher relationships. And what I suspect he may find <clears throat> is that these networks represent a few publishers controlling the process via a welter of front companies. But how useful it would be to identify the masterminds. <laughs> As for the physical publication, bear in mind that uh, publisher and printer were separate entities. Indeed, the place of publication may bear no relation to the place of manufacture. And without sufficient evidence, we should not ascribe all production decisions to the publisher, for the printer and binder may also have contributed to the process, <coughs> with or without the publisher's knowledge. As for the purchaser, uh, <coughs> he points out that uh, 
that some variants clearly reflect the intended markets, with publishers deliberately creating versions for sale to different audiences. In documenting these publishing decisions, it would be very useful to record copy-specific features indicative of purchaser, geographic distribution, readership, and, and the like. <clears throat> In sum, my hunch is that the primary answer to uh, Jim's closing question, evidence of what, will turn out to be rather straightforward. It will be publisher's intent. <clears throat> uh, Tom Tansel's view that, in principle, every copy of every publication should be preserved has been mocked as wildly impractical. Preserve every copy? Really? Adrian Lundgren offers an instructive example of why Tansel's view should be taken seriously. Consider 19th century photography manuals containing original photographs. Most photos were printed one at a time from negatives, so employing multiple negatives would speed the production of, say, a 1,000 copy edition. As the photos mounted in these copies may vary widely from copy to copy, or even be unique images, as she points out. Uh, she has demonstrated how useful <clears throat> it can be to view these publications in a fresh, innovative light. As a previously unappreciated archive of documented 19th century photographic papers. These manuals might be said to have varying levels of redundancy. <clears throat> they may be common in terms of survival, yet they may display uh, some range of variation in their publisher's bindings, for example, while each copy may be unique in terms of specific content. Given these varying levels, we should err more on the side of caution to ensure that as much unique evidence as possible is preserved. We should be mindful that library collections offer other facets worthy of similar treatment. Uh, one, of course, is book bindings. Book mining historians rely heavily on painstakingly identified exemplars, though relatively few library collections are documented sufficiently to facilitate such research. <clears throat> we could do similar work with other collection facets, such as the tens of thousands of medieval manuscript leaves preserved in bindings worldwide. In isolation, these fragments have modest value, but in the aggregate, they would constitute a powerful research tool enabling the virtual reassembly of many fairly complete exemplars. <clears throat> Uh, since uh, Kuhn and Lundgren described publications displaying a wide and unanticipated range of variants, sometimes to the copy-specific level, Kristen Jensen helpfully reminds us that post-manufacture and sale, publications can live long and frequently exciting lives as they pass from one owner to the next. Along the way, they pick up markings revealing where they had been, who has owned them, and how they have been used. Unless copy-specific evidence has been removed in rebinding, we are its fortunate beneficiaries, provided we can locate relevant copies and reconstruct their life stories. <clears throat> Andrew Stauffer envisioned book traces as a way of illuminating the reception history of 19th century literature through copies, especially those lurking and circulating collections uh, marked by readers. Uh, Jensen has showed us, uh, showed you Stauffer's fascinating crowdsourced website, which includes contributed images of marked books and interpretive uh, posts 
explicating the marking's meaning. Despite national public, uh, publicity, the site's impact uh, might possibly be said to be rather modest. Uh, Kristen saw a slide, I think, said about 605 contributions. Uh, last time I looked, it was about 770. Given the range of material out there, that's still rather modest. So I urge you all to uh, consider uh, adding to that number. <clears throat> Uh, fortunately, Stoffer uh, teamed with Eve a library to unlock some of the hidden value in its own circulating collection. And uh, Kristen has summarized the project's first stage, proposing a model for other research institutions to follow. <clears throat> uh, as you saw from the project staff list, uh, I was on its advisory committee. And I admit this was a continual assignment, for it took hardly a minute of my time. <clears throat> Uh, had I been asked, I would have offered comments such as the following. <clears throat> uh, in principle, the book traces concept is brilliant and timely, and I would urge you all to initiate similar projects elsewhere. Uh, however, uh, I would also counsel you to uh, rethink the UVA model. <clears throat> uh, its weakness is an insufficient understanding of provenance evidence and how to make it discoverable. <clears throat> Uh, consider Book Trace's use of the term intervention to describe the process of marking books. Uh, yes, some readers might be said to intervene with books, but isn't the process of marking and annotating better described as an interaction or an engagement? Uh, indeed, I think Book Traces uh, could have benefited had staff with extensive expertise in describing and interpreting copy-specific features intervened in the project. <coughs> Uh, the implications of this lost opportunity uh, are apparent in Book Trace's records. <clears throat> As you have seen, the vast majority provide only the following basic information. Uh, first is a note, <clears throat> and I quote, subject entries from the provenance evidence thesaurus describe copies analyzed by Book Traces at UVA. <clears throat> second, uh, subject entries describing the kinds of interventions found in that copy. For most books, the subjects are drawn from the following seven basic terms. Uh, annotations, insertions, marginalia, inscriptions, author's inscriptions, presentation inscriptions, and underscoring. And these provide anywhere from 177 to 2,508 hits. <clears throat> Does this fulfill Heather Jackson's wish for more, for more provenance-specific library cataloging? Um, not really. Uh, many book traces searches would retrieve hundreds of records, of which only a small number include a note describing copy-specific features in any detail. Even then, inscriptions are not transcribed, nor are markings stated, even approximately. Deprived of this all-important context, researchers have no choice but to laboriously call up and examine hundreds of volumes to find relevant ones labor book traces should have eliminated. <clears throat> uh, one wonders why book traces did not embrace the time-tested best practices of rare book cataloging, where accurate, concise descriptions of copy-specific features enable discovery through keyword searching and selected access points. Um, <clears throat> so to conclude, to date we have two iterations of book traces. Uh, first, as originally envisioned by a scholar of English literature, 
Uh, second, as we imagine, by library staff outside of special collections. I think what we need is a third, one informed by input from bibliographers, book historians, and the special collections community so that its users will be better served. Okay. So now I think it's time to invite our uh, <coughs> the speakers up to the stage and uh, entertain questions from the group. that came out of it is 
in the science department at LCN Preservation, they're trying to build a collection called CLASS, which is basically materials um, that are used in the creation of artwork. And they're buying things to contribute to that um, safeguarded collection. What this book collection ended up being, as Mark Dominion, the head of Rare Book at LC said, was it's value added to the collection that we already own. So instead of having to go buy all of this material to make that class of protected materials on the history of photography, we just mined our collection for that and added value just through the work that we've done. So I think it's, I don't know, that was kind of a roundabout way of answering your question, but I think it, it goes to a lot about what's going on in libraries, not just the reduction of the size of our collections and the cost of maintaining those collections, but also the reduction in staff, I think, and the amount of expertise that's really valued. It takes a huge amount of work and understanding to really safeguard these collections in the way that me and also the other authors up here, it's a life's work to understand that book and all of those editions. And so I think the making of these decisions happens without like the full understanding of potential of all of these long and collections. Uh, Jane? Yeah. So first of all, I want to say thank you to everyone. This is actually one of the most interesting panels I've seen in a long time. These are excellent papers and an excellent response. Um, I really enjoyed it. Uh, yeah. And I won't go on and on about the great but I can tell you afterwards if you want me to say <laughs> um, Well, I won't say no. <laughs> one of the things I think binds all this together um, that I spoke to me is the idea of the fundamental paradox of selection for original research. That if you're trying to find out something new for materials that exist, you do not know which materials have that. And so on one hand, we could go super deep on every single object, right? We could have a collection of phone books and be like, oh, look at these marks. We could tell which phone booth they were in, and they were drilled in different ways. And actually, that sounds really cool. Yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> are built not for a specific clientele within, say, three miles of the institution, but for anyone anywhere in the world who needs that material. And through digitization and so on, we can uh, do a much better job of placing them in that material or some um, uh, uh, surrogate and <coughs> make it accessible to them. Uh, but we always see, and this varies from time to time, uh, calls for institutions to focus only on what 
is defined at that time as their primary clientele. And I think this is worrisome. Uh, uh, it encourages uh, uh, rash decisions, uh, thinking only in the short term. Uh, and uh, uh, this is a, really an overarching problem. I, I really don't know how to solve other than to be really consciously aware of it. Can I say something about that? Um, I'm not a librarian, but until this whole thing about off-site and you can't get it back, I actually thought the library was addressing it really well because, yes, we are on Capitol Hill and real estate is limited. So we've addressed it by creating these modules out where real estate is more plentiful. Um, we have bundles at Fort Meade, and we have things at Landover for a long time now. We have Iron Mountain, we have some things, I think, and, you know, I, again, I'm not privy to all those decisions, but you may have to wait longer to get those items, but you could still get those items. And I, I always think, I thought that model was actually a really great model to look at. It's like, yeah, you may not have everything in-house, but you still have a way to get those things. This particular project was really disturbing to me just because of the prospect of not being able to get those things again. And so I like that model of kind of off-site storage. And um, if I can just say something about off-site storage and our experience with book traces at UVA, um, we definitely made moves. Um, there were a couple of points in the project where there were sort of chunks of books in the collections that were destined to be shifted off-site. And we made moves to get in there quickly, and you know, get my arranged for my student, you know, project assistants to get in there and, and do their survey on those books before they moved off-site. We ended up being very glad that we did that um, because if you want to do a study that requires books in sort of mass numbers, uh, the way book traces at UPA did, um, there's this physical labor involved in getting in retrieving books from off-site. They, at least at our library, I guess there are libraries that have mechanical systems, <laughs> but at least at our library, they don't just kind of magically come come back. Um, it's it's you know it's a couple of guys who are trained and have the safety equipment, whatever, and they go off into a, a, like a cherry picker and you know get the books off these very high, very dense shelves, and only certain you know there can only be one shelf opening at a time because the shelves roll back and forth and so forth. So um, we looked at, um, I, you know, I, I set the figure around 116,000, slightly less than that, 115 and change, um, books that we actually surveyed or looked for. Um, a little over 6,000 of those came from our offsite storage, and that was absolutely the max that we could ask for. And that took a little bit more than a year. Um, and I had boxes of books delivered, um, I think about 200 books at a time would come to me about once a week. Um, we just kind of kept doing that until we got through the books. Um, in the meantime, one of these guys with the training who could go up in the cherry picker, you know, had a terrible motorcycle accident. We had to just like, <laughs> we, we, we literally could not get the books from the outside storage for a few weeks, um, you know. And so there's, you know, yes, once things move off site, and I'm not categorically opposed to off site storage, um, but there is, you have to do that recognizing that there is this kind of cost or friction. Um, that comes with that move of putting things off-site. It's, you know, you obviously lose the, the browsing ability, but there's also just, if you want more than a few books at a time, um, it becomes physically impossible to actually get that many books. And then actually um, over our time, so we'll have to continue these conversations